This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 25 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. I've got the brilliant Paul Bindig here with me again. How are you, Paul? Oh, really well, thanks, David. Great to be here. Um, yeah, it's always good to have you here. And um, we've got a, a, another exciting guest this episode, which is Mr. Matt Johnson, who is probably best known as being sort of uh, keyboard player with Jamiroquai and also uh, has co-written um, a, a number of the songs with Jamiroquai and, and does a whole lot more outside of that. So it was uh, really great to talk with, with him. And as you'll hear, he has lots of cool stories about playing with Jamiroquai in his own um, solo career, but also he has some, I'd argue, very insightful tips on just you know being a player and, and playing within a band that I know I valued. So yeah, have a listen and uh, we'll talk after the show. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on this beautiful, uh, what is it, Monday morning in the UK. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Great to speak to you. Um, so I thought we would do something slightly different. We usually ask uh, guests over the last few months how they're keeping busy uh, in these COVID times, but it's pretty damn obvious you you have been keeping busy. I mean, just alone, the, your YouTube channel, let alone anything else. So just tell us what you've actually been up to the last three months. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I finished off a solo record, which, you know, is the first one I've got around to making. So lockdown was quite productive for me from that point of view. I'd just be getting up like super early in the morning and, and working on that uh, in between looking after kids and things. And uh, yes, and I've, I've, yeah, put a lot more energy into my YouTube channel, which people seem to be really enjoying, you know, yeah. so I started doing a few tutorials on that and I'm, I'm going to broaden it out. You know, I'm just going to keep adding stuff, all keyboard related stuff, really, that useful information that people can get for, for yeah, free. Good stuff. And we, we're definitely going to ask you more about that a little later on. So, um, but let's start off with a bit of a potted history of Matt Johnson. So just give us a, a bit of a synopsis of your career. What, what it's, well, more how you started out, actually. So what, what got you into music initially and, and kicked off your career? Right, yeah. Well, I mean, I was always musical as a kid. I was, uh, I was a trumpet player when I was young, and I was in, like, the National Children's Orchestra and stuff like that. And my dad wanted me to be a classical tr uh, trumpet player. 
But then I'd always sort of mess around with the piano as well. And when I got into my teens, I don't know, I got bored of playing classical music, I guess, you know, I wanted to try and get some girls somehow. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I got learning pop songs and stuff. And uh, the, like I say, the piano was always there. And a mate of my brother's had a band. He was a drummer and it, the keyboard player left and he said, oh, why don't you try out for it? And I was, I'd actually never thought about joining a band before. I thought, oh, yeah, what the hell, why not? went to the audition got it and then straight from there that was about age 16 I started getting work you know because I grew up in Bournemouth it was like a small town and I was one of the obvious sort of you know more naturally talented ones so I started getting work straight away so I really drifted into it and then I, I moved up to London age about 20 and I started off just busking on the streets paying my bills sort of thing and uh, bit by bit I started getting gigs in London and I sort of became part of this. There was a, a really good sort of soul R&B scene in London at that time. And I became like the guy that backed all the singers. You know, they all called me for the gigs because I knew all the tunes and I could play them in any key and stuff. So I started working like that, really. And uh, eventually that led to an audition for Jamiroquai, which I which I got, you know, and I haven't looked back since. Yeah. Just on the subject of the audition, I'm really curious, Matt, as to how that opportunity came about. But also, how, how did you, how does one prepare for an audition for Jamiroquai? What, what did you have to do? Um, well, firstly, how I got to the audition stage was I, someone had recommended me for another gig, a singer called Miss Dynamite. I don't know if you remember Miss Dynamite. She was like a 90s R&B singer. Oh, really yeah. good. Yeah. And um Anyway, I went to that audition. They already had a keyboard player, but they were thinking about getting a second one. But in the end, they didn't bother getting a second keyboard player because the other one was so good. But um, they, they they liked me, you know, and I was like their favourite player at the time. And in the band was Stuart Zender and um, Simon Katz, who were sort of, you know, in the original Jamiroquai mm -hmm. band, really. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think they recommended me to uh, Jamiroquai's drummer, Derek Mackenzie, when when um, Toby, the original keyboard player, left, uh, they they recommended me. So that's that's how I got the audition. And then uh, they, they had like a couple of days worth of auditions. A load of people came, I think. And they'd just given about four or five songs um, to learn. So I learned those and I learned a few other obvious ones as well, you know, just just to make sure. And I just made sure I learned them really well. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to, I mean, I remember getting to the audition, like it was about 10 in the morning, trying to find my way to Jay's place, which is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and the first thing I got out of the, my rust bucket of a car and like these two massive Alsatians were just jumping after me, like barking their heads off like they wanted to eat me. <laughs> and I could see Jay looking really moody in a, in a like an Adidas kind of, you know, weather top or something. And that was that that was. Yeah, that was my uh, welcome. <laughs> but I, I went in and I knew straight away that he loved my playing, you know, because I, I just did the first thing and suddenly he changed from being quite um, dour to jumping up and down and being really happy, you know. Yeah, yeah cool. Was it was it just Jay that you auditioned for or was the whole band no, there? The whole, band, the whole band was there. The whole band was there, yeah. Um, and I think the first song was something like Cosmic Girl. And it was actually a real buzz for me because when we started playing it and then he started singing, it was like, oh, yeah, 
Sounds like JK. <laughs> it's a funny thing when someone's got such a distinctive voice, you know, and I could hear oh, how good he is, you know, when he started singing. And anyway, and then he pointed to me to bust a solo and I just let it rip, you know, and he, and he was into it. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, it's funny too. I guess a song like Cosmic Girl, it, it's so hooky and catchy and dancing. And it's such a cool song. And uh, this probably didn't happen to you, but I could see it would be easy to uh, just get caught up enjoying the moment of playing with the band and, <laughs> you know, not yeah. perhaps concentrating 100% on playing your parts exactly right. Well, yeah, it could happen. And it's, it's funny, actually, the Rhodes part on that song, to my mind, has a slightly strange rhythm. Even though it sounds really natural when you listen to it, to play mm. it, it's it's on a slightly different beat where I would naturally play it. So I remember that being a, a, a bit of a weird one to get my head around getting that rhythm right. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Well, obviously the rest is history. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious, um, just sort of following on from that, in Jamiroquai, you know, in, in my opinion, that the, the sound of the keys is, is so integral to the overall sound of the band. Yeah, and I'm thinking about, you know, you coming and joining the band that was established and successful and, and it's still been very successful since then but did you have to adapt your own playing style and then maybe later songwriting style much to fit into the Jamiroquai sound in inverted commas mm, yeah and not not much because I think maybe one of the reasons I got the gig was I naturally was into the same sort of things probably as Toby and Jay were mm-hmm. you know so I I was already into those sort of sounds like they were using I was using those kind of sounds too um so it felt pretty natural to fit in. But obviously, there, yeah, there were certain things that were very specific. And I'd not done a big gig on that level before. And that does take a bit of adjustment. Because when you've been sort of playing a lot of club gigs, you tend to play a lot more because you've got to fill out the sound in a small club. Whereas when you go to do a big arena, you have to adjust to the fact that it's a great big cavernous place and, and you have this huge sound system. And actually, you have to play quite a lot less so that that was a little bit of an adjustment, and um, and in Jamiroquai, Jay really listens to the keyboards when he's performing live. He tunes to the keyboards, and that's really his cue. So, as the keyboard player in that band, you've got to be really aware of him, you know, and when he's struggling and needs help, or you know, when he's fi- struggling to find the key. If you're just playing all over the place, it's going to really, you know, just ruin his gig. So uh, that that became, you know, it, it took me a few gigs to realise that and get into that. And I've, I've got better at it over the years, I guess. Yeah. And that's uh, that probably links nicely to, to um, as far as uh, Jay taking cues from you, there, there's the two of you playing keys in the band. So how do you tend to divvy up the, the keys playing duties between um, yourself and Nate? Well, I mean... The reason we got Nate in on the last tour was to sort of cover the strings, basically. So, so I mean, I choose the parts I want to play. I, I play the main keyboard parts yeah. basically, and then I'll give I'll give him the string parts. Or you know, there might be a pad that I can't cover um, because you know I, it's better for me to concentrate. Obviously, I used to be able to cut. I used to cover everything, but sometimes some of the string parts might lose out a bit because it would be hard to play every part of the string part mm. and the roads part you know so so it's been quite cool from that point of view that he can cover those bits that that i wouldn't have otherwise been able to cover yeah and yeah. On, on the songwriting process 
I mean, Paul mentioned about adjusting your style, but what is the songwriting process within the band? Obviously, you've played a pivotal role in co-writing a number of songs, etc. So, yeah, how does how does that tend to work? Uh, well, normally he's got like a... He might come in with a little idea on his phone or something like that. It could be just like a... Whatever, little riff. You know, and then you work it out and then you try to find some chords. He might be hearing some sort of chords in his head and then we try to pick them out then I might suggest something different you know and it tends to evolve and it, it often ends up like nothing like the original idea but normally that's how it evolves he'll have some sort of little starting point of an idea and then we'll you know we'll we'll, we'll progress the music generally um it, but it depends you know there's some songs like there, there was one song on the last album I remember called uh we can do it oh, yeah. and uh i think he'd had that top line just the chorus we can do it that was it and then we had like sort of some sort of disco type thing and it wasn't quite working out and then we 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 decided okay we got a beat and then uh we'd forgotten about it and then we got a beat for something else and i just started playing a bass line and he just started singing we can do it and that was it. The song was written like yeah. in literally about a minute. You know, it was just done. <laughs> it was like, it, so sometimes they just come out like that so mm. naturally. Those are, they, those are the nicest moments, really, when it happens like yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, Matt, um, with the songwriting side of things, uh, you know, as David was just saying, you, you're very instrumental in, in writing songs for the band. Was that the case from day one or was that something that, that you grew into in, in your time in the band? Or, you know, h- how's that worked? Uh, yeah, I mean, luckily, I've always been quite heavily involved in the writing because I, mm-hmm. I think he, he's comfortable writing with keyboards. Uh, so even on my the first album I did, Dynamite, I've got about nine songs on there. It was very much me and Rob, that album, Rob the Guitarist. Yep. Um, but really, I suppose the last album is when I came most into my, to my own because I produced it as well. And mm-hmm. that was really just me and Jay, basically. We we sat and we did everything. We 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 worked for a month solidly, like nine to five, like five days a week, and we just caned it, caned it writing. And and that we in that month we'd written most of the tunes from the album, um, and it wasn't originally sort of that I was going to be the producer, but it just the demos came out so well in the first month. Then his manager at the time just said, "Oh well, why don't you let Matt produce?" You know. Yeah, nice. So that was, I had a lot, much more chance to be involved on a deeper level, if you know what I mean, in the creation mm-hmm. of the songs. Yeah. So, so I'm interested in your perspective on just songwriting and production generally. Do, do you feel that it's it's changed much in recent years with the way technology's been moving? Yeah, I think it. I think it has. I think obviously people still write in the same way as well. There's a lot of different ways of writing now. And mm. I mean, you know, you, you see some tracks, they've got like 10 writers on them, you know, and you have to wonder, is that really writing? You know what I mean? Because if a guitarist yeah. just plays a couple of chords, it's like, uh, OK, I co-wrote that song. Well, did you? You, know, you just kind of come up with a couple of chords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, to me, writing real writing is where you get into the big picture of a song you know you the sentiment of the song the what it's about you know what rather than just oh well like here's a here's a good beat you know you can chuck something on the top of that 
So uh, to me, that's where the crux of writing is, you know, and obviously that's often very much led by the singer. Um, but I try as a keyboard player to, you know, I will suggest changes in in melodies if I think, yeah. you know, that it's not great or that lyric sucks a bit, you know what I mean? W without trying to tell someone what to do, uh, which I couldn't do that to Jay anyway. <laughs> he wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> but he does listen. He does listen when he when he can sense that, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe yeah. that, that isn't great. Then he'll change it up. So that's, I like to get involved with artists like that. For me, writing is about helping the artist be the best they can be, if you know what I mean. Helping yeah. them bring, it, bring out the best in themselves. I, I think that's a co-writer's role. Um, rather yeah. than rather inflicting their your personality too much on them. Do you know what I mean? You want to let them bring out their thing. You add your thing to it, but you let them be themselves. You know, and that's I think Jay's good like that as well, in that he will allow people to to express themselves musically as well. And the best band leaders are like that you know like the your, your james browns and people they let people do their thing to a degree but they controlled it yeah exactly yeah, yeah and i guess the, the end product is better that way because everyone's contributing in a, in a constructive way uh to to the overall goal exactly you get the best out of someone you know if mm. if you if you're working with someone skillful then you should try to use their skills and knowledge you know best you can Agreed. And I mean, you mentioned, Matt, your own uh, work. So you released a new album in, in July um, yeah. and it's it's got that, you know, great, dancey, funky, jazzy kind of uh, vibe. What, what what was your experience in making that album and, and how that differed from your previous work? Uh, I mean, it's a really enjoyable experience. It started out just because I did a, a gig with a mate of mine who's a bass player called Ernie McCone. He's got a studio. He's a great bass player, and I said to him, oh, instead of paying me for the gig, let me use your studio for a couple of days, because he's got a nice little studio. And I went in with Jamiroquai's drummer, um, and we just cut some backing tracks uh, from some tunes that I had, sort of thing. And then lockdown happened, so really most of it was done remotely after that. Uh, I would, like I said earlier, I'd get up like really early, like six in the morning, and just do an hour, an hour and a half, at that time and I found that really productive and I came up with lots of ideas and then I farmed them out you know I, like I got an, a, a great American bass player called Mono Neon to play on a couple of tracks you know I just sent him the tracks he sent them back uh, so a lot of it was done like that um, without that one one-on-one -on -one interaction although my wife sang on a lot of the tracks so that was cool she was really instrumental in the whole thing too um, yeah, it was a great experience and I, I just really felt like I wanted to make it as good as I could, even though I had very little budget. I, I wanted people to be able to compare it favorably to the work I've done with Jamiroquai. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that was really important to me, to, that, that it was kind of up there standards wise. And it definitely stands up at, at that level. And just because you're a, a bit of a tech head, Matt, so when you say, you know, you worked remotely, we don't usually ask guests this, but how were you swapping the files? So what platform were you using? How were you actually approaching that whole get the album done remotely? Uh, generally, I was. it was very basic. You know, I would just send, like, for instance, with the horns, I'd just send the stems of oh, yeah. the music, the track, and then the horns separately because I'd, what I'd do is, 
I'd put the idea down what I wanted right. and get to replace it, you know, and they'd send me back tracks and then everyone sent good quality stuff back really. Um, yeah, it, it worked really well. I mean, it was crazy with like a mono neon, the bass player, because I sent him one of the, the tracks with the music, the, the, the title track of the album. And I said, Oh, look, if you like it, you know, you can do something on it. Uh, so let me know if you like it sort of thing and he just played on the mp3 which i'd already put a, it already had my keyboard bass on it so he just played over that which i thought was incredible and and it actually sounded amazing it's like geez how the how the hell did you manage to do that <laughs> that's cool yeah. no and we're, yeah. we're definitely going to um, quiz you on some more gear stuff in a little while too um but i mean what just keeping on the music for a sec too one of the standout features of your work is that beautiful fusion of sort of the classic road sounds and, and, and equivalent ones with a lot of cutting edge um, sounds and approaches. What, what do you credit as being your main influence there? Like what led you to develop that approach? Just a natural affinity with it or? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've got very eclectic tastes, but I love that sort of 70s. I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of Steely Dan, things like that, you know, Lonnie Liston-Smith. I love that dreamy road sound with a phaser on it. Um, I don't know, just it's, it's something that I gravitate towards. And uh, the Fender Rhodes, it's funny, it's like an instrument in itself. You know, you approach it slightly differently to how you play a piano, I think. I play differently when I play a rose to when I play a piano. Um, so I think I've got a real affinity for that instrument. And then with the synths, I don't know, like I say, I, you know, I'm coming from so many different places musically. So I, I liked some of the sort of art, art rock music, you know, yeah. I, what, what, how would you say, you know, like craft work and yeah. talking heads and, you know, Japan, all these sort of quite interesting things. I, I love those. Uh, but I've also got a big love of black music and soul, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I suppose it's just my musical personality is like a combination of those things, really. You mentioned you mentioned Matthew quite eclectic in your taste. So I'm wondering, is is there anything that you really listen to for pleasure that that might surprise fans of your of your contemporary work? You work with Jim Rockwell and your solo stuff. Yeah, probably lots, really, because like I said, I, I mean, I was trying to choose those top five records, you know, <laughs> and they're they're all across the board because you know I do I I love I love some rock music, I love jazz, I love Brazilian music, I love Bella Kuti, you know, Nigerian music. I, I'm I'm really across the board, so I'm not just listening to funk all the time. You know, much as I love it, I'd get bored listening to that all the time. Yeah. I, I want to hear things, you know, different yeah. influences. Vangelis, you know, oh, like yeah. Blade. Mm. Right. I'm always playing that, you know, things like that. Hey, we talked before briefly about your YouTubing, and would love to explore that a little bit with you. You mentioned before you're putting a bit more time and energy into it, and I can certainly recommend to our listeners to do check out Matt's YouTube channel. It's uh, mm. really it's really entertaining, uh, informative, and fun. Um, you've built your channel up to about twenty four thousand subscribers. How did the journey start, and, and where do you think you're going to take your channel to in the future? uh it started sort of um my wife was pushing me to do it she said oh you should try it uh and so i thought yeah what the hell i'll do it and i think it suddenly got popular because i bought the moog one mm. when it you know when it had just come out and and 
I, I thought, oh, well, this is a good thing to do a video on. And sure enough, that was super popular. So straight away, I got quite a lot of followers. <clears throat> and then I then I thought, well, I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm like everyone else. I'm on YouTube looking at keyboard stuff, you know, all the time. <laughs> so I suppose, you know, you get driven to say, well, what are the things that frustrate me when I watch the videos? What do I want to see? You know, and what I realized was there weren't that many people doing who could play quite well, you know, who also had an understanding of synths and stuff. And often when you go to check out a synth in particular, it's just some guy, you know, like pressing one button and, and showing you what the sawtooth wave is like or something, you know, and it's it's cool, but it's not so interesting musically, you know, because if you buy a synth or a keyboard, you want to know what it's going to be like in a in a real world situation. That's right. So that, that's what I've tried to do with my channel is that I, I try to show the keyboard. That's why I, normally I've got two keyboards and I yeah. try to play little sort of vinaigrettes of songs, you know, or pieces of music. So you can hear the thing, what it actually might sound like if you used it in a track rather than something that just goes zoying, you know, and it's like, yeah, oh, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's only so much of that you can take, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> and on that, I mean, any chance you can get a hold of a Polybrute, Matt? Because I've had the exact same issue with that. I've seen so many Polybrute videos and not one where I've seen it played in a real, real world scenario. It's driving me mad. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have, no have mentioned the Polybrute. Yeah, I mean, look, if anyone out there's listening, do you want to send me one? Yeah, and come I'll on, Arturia. <laughs> send Matt a Polybrute, please. <laughs> we'll start a petition. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. It looks like a great synth. I'm sure it's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got some amazing videos on there, and uh, one that I was quite bemused was the um, Andromeda, and was reading through the comments, and obviously a sponsor of this podcast, but also um, friend and and forum mate is Dave Bryce, who um, posted a comment there as one of the guys that sort of helped create the Andromeda. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. A small yeah. world. So, yeah, great guy. So um, is, is that something you still use relatively regularly? Yeah, I mean, I do. It's, it's like I, I always say, the reason you end up with lots of keyboards is they're all good for different things. Uh, so, like, I'll pull out that Andromeda if, I, if, I, if I'm struggling to find a good pad sound, for instance, because it's got amazing thick pads, you know, so I'll use it for things like that. There's a there's a couple of lead sounds on it as well that I've programmed that I know are great, you know. So it just depends on what music I'm working on. If I think, oh yeah, the Andromeda's the one for that, then out it comes, sort of thing. Um, and I do think all these keyboards are, are good for a, a few sounds, really. You know, they all do a few things really exceptionally well. So yeah, it does it does get used? Yeah. I was going to ask related to that. So I. I... You said, you know, use different things for different purposes. Your touring rig, you've got, there's a great video there of, of generally how that's set up. So I'm, I'm more interested in what are the, the synths at home that you just either go to constantly or new ones you, you're keeping your eye on and, and sort of have a little bit of um, drool going over at the moment? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm quite satiated at the moment. <laughs> I've bought a few. I, I've just bought the Profit 10. Uh, okay which is nice. nice yeah so i've been playing well so there's a video coming for that soon <laughs> uh that's lovely um the moog one i'm still very very in love with it's it's just so 
capable of such a broad amount of sounds. It takes a lot of learning, but I, I'm still learning it, but I'm getting better and better sounds out of it all the time I'm using it. So I use that a lot. And I've also, uh, not long ago, bought this uh, UDO Super 6. Ah, yes. If you've seen that, I love that. It's it's amazing. It really is incredible sounding thing. So at the moment, those are my toys, you know, <laughs> that I'm using a lot. I've, I've got a Jupiter 8 there as well. Um, and that often gets used to because it's just there's certain things that it it can do is, you know, very majestically that other yeah. synths can't quite, quite get to. I used that a lot on the um, on the last Jamiroquai album, the, the Jupiter okay, 8. Jupiter was, 8. Because Jay loves the sound of it as well, so we we did use that an awful lot. Is, uh, is there anything on the horizon that you're lusting after, Matt? Well, like I say, I think I've bought enough keyboards for a while. <laughs> is that possible, though? Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing out there now. Uh, you know, now I've got that profit. I mean, that's something that I, you know, it's a nostalgia thing, really. Because yeah. all the things that we all grew up listening to, you know, it's great. You you sit in front of it and you you find yourself playing tunes from the 80s because you know? yeah. it's just got the sound. Uh, mm. So, yeah, I feel like I've really got most things covered at the moment. Um, and I've not, I mean, there's a few, there's loads of interesting things out there. There's that Hydra synth that yeah. a lot of people seem to like. Um, but, yeah, I feel like I've got enough at the moment. I'd have to sell a few to make a bit more room in my <laughs> studio. Terrible. I am actually working on a plug-in at the moment as well, but it's very oh, early really? day. Yeah, I won't say too much no, about it, okay. but I'm going yeah. to bring out a plug-in next year, probably, with this company from LA. So that should be cool. With also a bit of sort of MIDI interactive playing. I'll do some playing and, and some MIDI files, um, and people will be able to use them in their in their sessions. You know. and, and, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, can't wait to hear yeah. that. And, and what sort of, as far as your computer-based system what what are your you know what, what's your platform of choice if you're happy to disclose that and you know some go-to plugins that you, you love to bits yeah um i use pro tools oh, yeah. uh, i've got a hdx system um i don't use any keyboard plugins apart from uh, i've got i've got contact which i do use because mm. i've got like a, a, a there's a lovely piano sample called piano in blue which is um, the the piano that Bill Evans played on Kind of Blue. Wow. Yeah, right. It was it's actually sampled in the room that that album was made on, on the piano that he played. Wow. And it's, it, yeah, it's a really beautiful piano sample. So I use that quite a lot. Apart from that, I, I use all hardware. I made a decision a few years ago. I think I, I sort of had a bit of an epiphany one day. I was just like sitting there and I was messing around with like a, jupiter 8 plug-in on some track i was working on and then i just looked around and i was like what what am i doing i've got a jupiter 8 you know? <laughs> so why am i using a plug-in and and i find that you know we get lazy and we just can't be bothered to plug in the hardware thing you know we end up using a plug-in so at that moment i just decided to stop using them completely and to make all, all hardware and I've, I've not you know never regretted doing that no. um but uh, in terms of like production plugins, I love the UAD gear. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've got I've got the, uh, loads of the UAD plugins, and that's mostly what I use to be honest, because um, they're they're fantastic. And, um, 
and the yeah, lack, the lack of plugins, or not lack, but it, it, not using plugins. That did, I assume that translates to being on stage. So, do you use anything on stage to coordinate between all your rig as far as switching patches or anything like that? No, I do it all manually. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not so difficult these days. Like, especially I've got that Yamaha montage. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool because you can select about eight scenes within a patch. That's right. So yeah. I. I I can seamlessly go from one sound to another with the scenes, you know, without having to change a patch. So that, that makes it real easy. And then um, some of them are midied up together. So if I change, I've got like a montage yeah. six and that's midied up to the OB six, Dave Smith OB six. So sometimes, you know, I might be using a combination of sounds or I've got the keyboard split. So the bottom is playing OB six and the top is the montage, mm. things like that. Um, so yeah, I find it not so complicated and, you know, I don't have to worry about it ever going wrong That's in that right. sense as well. I'm in control of my own destiny on stage. Uh, so I, I'm really happy keeping it like that. Yeah. You don't have problems. And if something goes wrong, you know, with a keyboard or something, you just go over to one of the other ones, you know, and you know where all the, all your sounds are because you set them up and you know what each number and patch is yourself. <clears throat> I think it's a good way personally. Exactly. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and that being said, um, having played lots of lots of uh, gigs all over the world, at various sizes, I'm I'm curious as to and we always ask this question of every guest, Matt. What is your most memorable on stage train wreck? <laughs> okay, yeah, I have one. <laughs> it's not technical; it's uh, it's user error. <laughs> That's okay. But, um, you know, deeper underground, the track deeper underground. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big moment in the Jamiroquai set, you know, for a long time it was anyway, we, it'd be like one of the last songs and it started with this massive orchestral intro. Mm-hmm. It's like a very filmic thing and I've yep. got a patch set up with like, it's like strings plus horns plus a timpani, you know, it's like this big noise basically. Yep. And it plays quite a, a bleak line that's kind of a bit weird in a way, very filmic thing. And the sound engineer puts like a sub on the sound and he cranks it up. So people in the front row look like they're, you know, just about to spontaneously combust. It's so loud. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, it's all on me. So I'm hitting this thing. And one day it was a massive crowd. I can't remember where it was, but it was a festival or something, you know, 40,000 people or whatever. I'm playing it and I'm going up the line and my mind just went a complete blank, just complete blank. And I just didn't know what the next notes were, but I had to keep playing, obviously. <laughs> so I hit some notes and sure enough, they were the wrong notes. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, to be that loud and it to be that wrong. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I really wanted the floor to just open up and swallow me. <laughs> and from that day on, that's about like, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. Every time we're uh-huh. on stage and we play that song and I do that instru- intro, I'm sweating. I'm just sweating. Oh, so and as soon as that intro's fin- as soon as that intro's finished, I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay, I'm looking forward to my beer and you know backstage yeah. now. <laughs> that makes me feel better, Matt, because I have the same. If I've made a mistake, it never goes away as far as the stress around that particular phrase. Never. Goes yeah, it's away. the shock of doing it, isn't it? The shock of doing it, 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 it does stay a long time. But I've learned generally with mistakes on gigs you know because let's face it everyone makes mistakes mm. 
I think sometimes you can make a mistake, you know, like earlier in my career, if I made a mistake, it would really play on my mind during the gig and it would really affect the rest of my gig. If you know what I mean, you know, I might lose confidence. And now I really don't do that. You know, now if I'd make a little little mistake, I just, I try to reset and and forget about it. You know what I mean? I think it's quite important. It's, It's amazing how much, the mental game of music, you know, plays such a big part, I think. Um, you know, I think there's there's great players, like amazing players that might not go as far as they can because maybe mentally they're not quite got the right sort of um, mindset, if you know what I mean. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. Actually, I think that's a, a great piece of advice for, for, for any uh, musician is uh, um, to, you know, keep your head in the game, even if you have made a mistake. Uh, so mm. thanks for sharing that. And, and I'm curious whether you can share mate, just some other general things you've learned over your long career and very successful and you've, you've worked with other artists. Are there things you've learned such as that that, that have improved you over the journey? And, and what do you think you may have passed on to others as well? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots, especially about live playing. Uh, I mean, to do on, on that same sort of subject, you know, like when we all have good days and bad days, don't we? You know, where our, our, our energy is high, maybe our keyboard skills are, are high too, you know, and we have a great gig. Um, and those are, those are fantastic moments. But when you're not having a good day, day my advice is always go to your basic default. I'm not saying that you, you know, you, you just sort of, your head goes down or anything like that. Not at all. You concentrate as much as you can, but you go to basics, play your basic stuff. Don't try anything that's slightly challenging on those days. And I found if you do that, then by the end of the gig, you'll, you'll, you'll have regained confidence and you'll be able to start playing well. Whereas if you try to like, Oh, come on, I've got to do this, you know, and push too far on a bad day, that can affect your confidence negatively. Um, I feel as well like playing live, how important it is to listen, you know, and use your ears when you're in a band to what everyone else is doing and think about your role in, in the band, you know, because I think a lot of things, uh, something a lot of musicians suffer from is playing way too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a really important thing to to do. You know, when you're on stage, try to think like you're playing a record, you're playing on a record, and how much would be acceptable for you to play. You know what I mean? If you were playing mm-hmm. on a record, Quincy Jones was in the other room. <laughs> you're not going to waffling all over the singer, you know, because you're going to get the red card straight away. I think those those are the the really important things that people don't maybe spend enough time thinking about. You know, not just keyboard players, all musicians, you know, they, they spend so much time trying to get loads of good red hot licks or whatever, you know, but yeah, yeah. Not enough time thinking about their role within music, because actually each instrument usually does something quite basic, you know, that your role is normally quite basic. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be a little point where you can shine, but... The, the musicians that impress me the most when I play with someone are the people that just do what's absolutely right for the song, you know, and don't try to show off. If they show off, it's because it was a moment that required that. Yeah. You know? I, I think that's, that's a really important thing to learn in terms of playing live and your progression as a musician, you know. 
That's it's a sick. sign of maturity and it's a sign of security as opposed to insecurity when you're trying to impress everyone, show you how great you are all the time, right. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah of, co- of course. I, I liked that story you were telling us earlier, Matt, too, about how part of your role is to is to help Jay be the best he can be, and you know, really, you know, it's uh, you're part of a team. Absolutely. I mean, that's really important. I think the keyboard player is often really pivotal for singers. Um, you know, I think in a lot of bands uh, or musical situations, function gigs, whatever, the singer kind of does rely on the keyboard because the keyboard provides the most harmonic information. Um, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's easy. It's, sometimes singers can get lost on stage. They can't hear where, what the pitch is, what the key is. And it's normally the keyboard they'll look to, to to try to get that information. So whatever gig I'm doing, I'm always looking at the singer and trying to trying to help the singer the best I can, because that's going to make the gig go the best it can. Because most people are, are, you know, they're focused on the singer and the song. So our, our, our job in that situation, unless we're doing a jazz gig or something or an instrumental gig, our job is to try and help that singer get the gig going you know get get things going along and entertain the crowd you know i'm wondering uh, why we don't have a keyboard player's 10 commandments because i think the one you mentioned matt there about the quincy jones like commandment one should be the quincy jones rule and command, <laughs> commandment two should probably be for on stage the james brown rule which is exactly the same as a quincy jones rule but just on stage yeah yeah um yeah i think Head, that's great always aware you know what i mean always yeah. looking around seeing what's going on because you don't want james uh, brown looking at you saying you've done wrong exactly <laughs> or well, Chuck Berry. Jamiroquai. you you can't make it you won't last in a jamiroquai gig if you're not paying attention to jay because because he, he does do some real random last minute yeah. changes on stage so we're all really used to having our heads up and you know yeah it, cool. it, yeah, but uh, I do notice some good players do that, that they're not looking, you know, they're just so in their playing, they're not kind of focusing on what's going on at the front of the stage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, at your peril. And um, so given the, the year you've had already, uh, Matt, what, what's on the horizon in the coming 12 months or so? Obviously subject to touring, you know, and there's a lot of things up in the air at the yeah. moment. But yeah, what, what, what's the plan for the coming year? Well, mate, I'm still formulating it. <laughs> it's, it's very hard to say, isn't it? You know, uh, I can't see live gigs coming back anytime soon. No. You know, not, not on a big level. I just can't see it. So hopefully, I think Jay does want to start doing something new. So I'm hoping my next year or so will be maybe making a Jamiroquai album yeah. would be fantastic. You know, that'd be the, the best way I could spend the next 12 months. I'll definitely keep doing the YouTube stuff. Um, you know, I'm doing sessions for people as well. There's people are coming through and I'm doing writing with some artists. Good. So while I'm at home, I'll be, I'll be spending my time like that, I guess, trying to write with people, just trying to do stuff. You know, yeah. I, I, I never sit I, every day. I'm trying to do something in the studio, no matter what, you know? And I think, you know, for all of us in these times, especially musicians, obviously it's really tough. I, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones that I've got, you know, royalties and things like mm-hmm. that to buffer me. Some people don't have that luxury. But I think we've all just got to keep our heads up and try and think how we can use our time the best we can, you know. That's right. Even if that's, like, well, now I can spend five hours a day practicing all those things that I never learned, you know, yeah. whatever. We'll be positive, haven't we? No, well put. 
And um, we've said this to previous guests, but we are all sort of on a virtual desert island at the moment. So it's time for that dreaded question, the desert island discs. <laughs> so what did you come up with, Matt? What are your five? Okay. They're not much to do with keyboards, I'll have to admit. That's okay. But I just I, I just thought I've got to pick five records. Because, I, like I said to you, I'm so eclectic with taste. So I thought if I'm going to have five records, it's got to reflect kind of all across the board what I like listening to. So... Uh, First of all, I wanted to have something that reflected live music, you know, and energetic music. So uh, Rufus stomping at the Zavoy. And if you know that record, Rufus is just is just one of the best live albums ever made. And Shaka Khan is just absolutely on fire. And and the whole band are amazing. And it's just real good, up, energetic music that makes you happy, you know. So that's that's that. on a very introspective note, if when you're in the other mood, David Sylvian Secrets of the Beehive. Oh, wow, yeah, cool. It's just a beautiful, beautiful album. Amazing musicians on it, but very simple and just great songs. Really great songs and very, very moody. And you probably Love know it. the answer to this, Matt. David Sylvian and, and obviously Japan previously, did they have a lot of success outside of the UK? Would they sort of have US success? I can't recall. I think limited, yeah. you know. I think that a little bit, but it was more a UK thing, I guess. Yeah, we'll I mean, I love Japan. Japan was one of the bands that really influenced me the most when I grew up. Mm. It was like one of the first bands that I ever got into. And and to this day, you know, I think the keyboard sounds on, like Tin Drum particularly, yeah. the last Japan album, are just other work. They're just so amazing. They really are so amazing. They still sound like... Well, how the hell did you get that sound yeah. now? You know, um, and he's one. Of, I like that keyboard player, Richard Barbaro, because he he's self-confessed. He's not a great keyboard player in terms of technique or anything like that. But his approach to synthesizers and stuff is just amazing. You know, and as a sound designer, I've got massive respect for him. You know, as, as a as a as a keyboard player nice. and Sylvian, you know, as well. I love him. Um, so that, that one, uh, what else have we got? Yes, uh, I had to have a hip hop album on there. So Outcast, The Love Below. Nice. Yeah, I love that. It's a great record. He's just such a quirky character, Andre 3000. And, you know, it's just, it's a good fun album. Yeah. It's a good fun album. But I, I love that Love Below's kind of got all that in there a little bit, plus a bit of rap and hip hop that, I, that I'm, I'm a bit of a hip hop fan. Uh, so that's that one. Uh, David Bowie Heroes. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big David Bowie fan. Again, it's another thing when I was growing up, I really was a big Bowie fan. And I love the the B-side with the instrumentals, Brian Eno sort of instrumentals yeah. on Heroes. Again, some great keys on that, actually, and just really interesting sound textures that I love. And uh, last one is Pat Matheny, Still Life Talking. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a beautiful album. You know, I had to have something with a bit of a jazz influence in there. I love Lyle Mays as a keyboard player. Uh, sadly, died, didn't he, earlier this Recently, year? Recently, yes, that's right. Yeah. That's... he's. I love his keyboard playing. He's fantastic. For me, he was like the next step on from Bill Evans. Mm. He's got that sort of laid back, beautiful piano style, you know, um, and some great synth sounds. And the other thing I love about that album 
which is why it's in my top five, is it's got a Brazilian influence and I really love Brazilian music. So, um, so there you go. That's my and, top five. And I like how you, um, one of my favourite songs of the whole 80s is Pat Metheny and Bowie's This Is Not America. I just love that song to bits. I love yeah, 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 that's great. I wish great. they'd really, done more work together. Really odd pairing, isn't it? it but is. it worked. Yeah. Um, no, thank you, Matt. That's brilliant, and um, it's been wonderful talking to you overall. I mean, yeah, you've provided some really brilliant insights on both, you know, playing and lessons you've learnt from that and, and production, and um, we'll certainly be linking to your YouTube channel, and um, I'm already a subscriber, and um, you look forward to seeing lots more of you in the future. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. And there we have it. Paul, I know I said in the intro that um, Matt had some insightful stuff. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I really liked his learnings, I guess you could say, from, mm. from his time playing live. And I think there's some things any anyone of us who might play keyboards live, no matter what the scale of the show, could, could take away. And I think it's that uh, – I think Matt's the second or third guest we've had that's talked about that whole – not thinking too much about what you're playing or overthinking and versus your muscle memory. And the more you think about it, the more likely you may be to make a mistake. And that sure as hell is my reality as a keyboard player. So yeah, it's always lovely to hear the pros say the same thing. It's good to know they're human like us. They are. And yeah, so huge thank you to Matt, who's a very good human all around from what I can tell. So um We'll be back in a month or so. For those of you that uh, listen regularly may realise the format has sort of drifted out to three or four weeks. That's not for lack of interest. That's purely uh, Paul and I being hugely busy and successful, you know, men of society. Is that right, Paul? Something like that. That must be the reason. That must be the reason. (laughs) So, yes, we will be back um, and we've we've got another... um, a bit of a bucket list guest on next episode as well that we're a bit excited about. So we'll just tease that. Um, As always, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard chr1. We've still got our good old fashioned email at editor at keyboard chronicles.com. And if you would like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account, which is at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. And that's pretty much all of our social links. Um, A huge thank you to you, Paul, for joining me again this episode. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And and thanks again for inviting me along. I had a great time. Yeah, and I I think we need to get over this inviting you along stuff because we're now at episode 25 and I think you've been here for like 22 of them. So I think, you know, you're part of the furniture, mate, and you can't escape. Only because you can't get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And most importantly, thanks to all of you out there for listening. We do appreciate the feedback we get. Um, Actually, sorry, just as a side, we did get a nice email uh, from someone that um, is suggesting three other keyboard players to approach. And so thank you for that. I think it was Ken. Apologies, Ken, if I've got your name wrong. Um, And um, so, yeah, we really do appreciate that feedback. And we'll see you all here next episode. Thank you.